Nick Jameson is an American musician, actor, and producer. Born in Missouri and raised in Philadelphia, Nick has had a lengthy career in music, from joining the band Foghat in the mid-1970s to solo albums and work with Motown. Nick then turned to acting. Notable credits include playing the Russian president in three seasons of 24, alongside an extensive body of voiceover work. From there, Nick moved into the world of stand-up comedy and relocated to Reykjavik, Iceland in 2014. Welcome, Nick. Delighted to have you on. Good to be here, Connor. So first question, Philadelphia. What was it like growing up in the 50s and 60s? Philly is great. Um, Boy, what can I say? It's a great music town. Uh, I was there during the sort of rock and roll uh, hippie uh, years. Uh, I had a band. We were probably the most popular band in Philly at the time. Um, I'm talking about my teen years now. Uh, Going back, uh, I grew up on in a place called Garrett Hill, which was, I would say, mostly African-American neighborhood. So that really uh, uh, who I am, I guess. Yeah, I uh, no longer with us, who are just some of the greatest people ever. Uh, it's a very real place. It's a, there's it, not a lot of, you know, bullshit <laughs> in Philly. People tend to be real down, down and real with each other. I mean, people say the same thing about New York and I guess, I guess it's true. It's, uh, I, I always feel, I feel like I'm coming home when I go there. Uh, in terms of Missouri, how would you contrast Philadelphia with Missouri? Well, I, uh, I only lived in Missouri when I was a kid. I was like mm. a baby. You know, we we left Missouri. I think I was one or two years old. Uh, moved to Greece shortly, and after that to Britain, and then uh, then we moved to Philadelphia. So mm. I have uh, one memory of Missouri that's getting too close to a big tower with power cables on it. And my dad getting mad at me. That's that is it. <laughs> <laughs> And nothing, nothing eventful happened from that experience. You didn't uh, blow up half of Missouri, did you? No, it could have caused you know long-lasting trauma. Uh, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, in terms of growing up in an African American neighborhood, obviously that must have influenced you musically. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, I've always loved blues and R and B and hip hop. Now, I mean, we would. We would, uh, you know, rap before it was called rap. We'd be in the corner just, you know, uh, we right. called it the dozens or, you know, fuck your mama or whatever. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just rhyming at each other, doing rap battles, basically, you know, without a beat. And uh, which is interesting because rap battles now are generally performed without a beat. Um, so it uh, it's all very familiar to me. I, I just was into that from a young age. Mm. So you would have been coming to maturity growing up in the 60s right so we're talking the kennedys we're talking civil rights we're talking vietnam was a draft ever going to be an issue yeah oh very much so uh i was drafted and uh i went down there and um there was no way i was going to vietnam i thought it was a bullshit war and uh as everyone i knew did there was no way i was doing that uh, so I got a, uh, I got a letter from my psychiatrist that I went to when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, 
uh, talking about certain incidents that happened when I was a kid. And uh, I didn't do anything to uh, dissuade the draft board from thinking that was true. Mm. So I was categorized one why, uh, which is you're not drafted for medical reasons. And uh, I don't feel it wasn't really deception because all the stuff my uh, shrink said was true. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, later on, much later in life, was diagnosed as bipolar. So, you know, I it wasn't really deception. But even if it had been, I wouldn't feel bad about it because there was just no way I was going to go fight that particular war. We're not talking Hitler. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. About, we're talking about the North Vietnamese trying to get their country together, you know. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, and plus, it, it's not deception because you were looked at by a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist yeah. made a medical decision. Yeah. Um, you know, years before. Mm. So I brought that up as a reference. Mm. Uh, but it wasn't an army psychiatrist. I, uh, I remember I came into the draft board and went through all the sort of humiliating stuff you do, uh, walking around in your underwear, taking all these tests. And I ended up sitting down with uh, an evaluator of some sort. I don't know if he was a doctor or what. And he said, uh, why don't you want to go in, in the army? And I said, I just don't think I'd make a very good soldier. And uh, that apparently, along with everything else, and the pathetic way I said it, I guess, son, you're right. You're not going to make a very good soldier. Okay, you're one Y. Get out of here. <laughs> wow. And was that a, um, do you think a lot of people would have not qualified on psychiatric grounds? Oh, yeah. No, I was sitting there in the room uh, while at the end, while people were waiting to receive their designation. I hear mm. out, you know, McAllister goes up, gives his thing, this ash 1A, you know, and yeah. Uh, uh, and, you know, but a lot of people I knew, you know, were conscientious objectors mm. or they moved to Canada or they did any number of things or they went to jail rather than go over there and fight that war. Um, you know, I guess I was lucky that I didn't have to do all of that stuff. Um, I just felt it was an immoral war. I'm not a war fan in general. You know, if somebody's uh, attacking the country, that's <laughs> mm. a different story, but that was not happening. Um, so, yeah, the war was not popular in my circle uh, at all. Did you protest or get involved in any marches or any movements around that time to, to yeah. object? Very much so. Um, I marched many times, um, got my ass kicked many times <laughs> in the process. Uh, it was countless, countless times. I, I was very, uh, very much active against it. So how would... Uh... So, so you you start you joined Foghat that and you were developing musically, right? Um, and you were uh, you you were you were reaching pretty uh, pretty high levels. Like you were you had your own band in the nineteen seventies. And what was it called again? American American Dream. Yeah, it was the late sixties. Uh, yeah, and we did we did well locally. Uh, we had a single that sort of scraped the charts a little bit nationally. Um, we did very well, but I got, uh, I was, I was the best who, who sort of broke it up because I got restless. I wanted to, I was very influenced by Todd Rundgren who produced our record. He was kind of the other hotshot guitarist in town and he, he was getting into engineering and then got into producing and uh, our band was his first production actually. And I 
I was just impressed and kind of inspired by what he was doing, like taking taking matters into his own hands. Because in those days, you go into a studio and there was an engineer and you'd had a producer and you really had very little say about what went on uh, unless you were, you know, quite a big deal. Mm. Um, and he uh, uh, and, I, and I became fascinated with the whole thing of engineering. I learned a lot about that, studied it in depth, frantically. And uh, I just thought, yeah, I want to I want to get into that. And um, I got a job at uh, Bearsville Studios. Um, a little background. Uh, my manager, Paul Fishkin, uh, my band in Philly, ended up working for Albert Grossman's uh, record company, which was called Ampex Records at the time, uh, later became Bearsville. And he recommended me to Albert uh, as far as they were looking for someone like an assistant engineer or something like that. And he got me a job up there and I just worked as an unpaid intern for a while and then worked my way up to an assistant, then to engineer. And then then I started producing. Uh, so that's how I made that transition. And as far as joining Foghead, I I worked with them a few times. Uh, they brought me some tracks from their first album that they weren't happy with. Um, and this, you know, this is my very early days. And it was like, oh, wow, this is exciting. And they wanted some tracks remixed, which I did, and they liked them. And then I did their Rock and Roll, Out Rock and Roll Outlaws album with them and uh, produced it and engineered it and played a few things on it, too. And uh, so when it came time to do their next album, uh, you know, I was going to do that. And they had a falling out with their bass player and they wanted me to join. And I said, I joined for a year. Um, I also told them I could play bass, which was a lie. <laughs> I had to learn really quick. Uh, you know, as a guitar, most guitar players, you know, can mm. play some sort of bass, you know. But I, I, I knew I had to become a proper bass player. Uh, Rod Price in particular was very fussy about what he considered a good bass player. <laughs> And, um, and, so, and tell me when you were producing the, and they brought the, the work to you, what do you think it was that you added that um, impressed them? Uh, and that on the Fool for the City record, that was the first one where I was a band member. Mm. And um, from the beginning, we started working on the songs. I just had a lot of input. Um for I mean, their biggest song is Slow Ride. I basically arranged it. Um, Roger, a lot of times, gives me credit for co-writing it. I never claimed that. It was Dave's song and his idea. Uh, but I did a lot on that. And, um, you know, I just brought some other musical influences in. With You know, I had a respect that they had their thing. Uh, they were a blues rock band. Pretty simple. And that's who they were. That's what they did well. And that's what people liked about them. But I, I just tried to push it a little bit, get some more influences in there without screwing with what they had. Mm. And looking back, I, you know, I, I think that I was successful at that. I don't think I overdid it. <laughs> you know, what I, mean? mm. um, you know I, I did a, uh, you know, sort of a popping bass thing in the middle of slow ride. And people weren't doing that in hard rock in those days. It was a funk thing. Mm. Um, things like that. I, I'd use a lot of weird percussion sounds, like using a dial telephone in slow ride. <laughs> in the middle, you can hear that. It sounds like snakes rattling. Mm. Um, yeah, and just, just the way I would record stuff. And uh, uh, I just through the arranging and, and playing, I, 
it's hard for me to tease it all apart. But like I said, I think I brought some colors in that they didn't have before. Mm. And if you listen to the records, I think you can hear that. Um, and again, going in, I just I knew that I don't look, I don't want to mess with their thing mm. because, I, you know, I'm very eclectic. I have all kinds of musical tastes. And um, so, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm sorry I'm not being more specific about what exactly. <laughs> well, no, but, where, where I'm going with this is I think because Foghatter, they're a British um british american band right and you're bringing the blues and jazz mm -hmm. to it and i'm thinking okay well you like you said you must have added a huge amount of color and nuance and something different they thought wow yeah well they they were big blues fans i mm -hmm. i would say they were a blues rock band i mean they came out of the blues dave peverett uh in particular the lead singer lonesome dave was a massive blues fan he must have had thousands and thousands of blues albums knew everything about everything um so i can't say i educated them i, I didn't school them on the blues at all mm. um if anything he turned me on to a lot of stuff that i didn't know about i would say yeah it was more i had a lot of sort of new orleans influence keyboard wise i had a um again i the way i learned bass was so wacky you know i had to learn it really quickly and i was influenced by people like rocco from tower of power stanley clark <laughs> you know uh and of course people i'd always like like james jameson carol Kay, paul mccartney and i just kind of uh mashed a lot of that together and uh yeah which i yeah I, I was i was into jazz at the time but Aside from a few chords on one of the ballads, I don't think I jazzed them up <laughs> very much. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I, you know, I like counterpoint, you know, sort of funky contrapuntal stuff. You can hear in the song Fool for the City in the little breakdown. There's a lot of sort of guitar and bass interaction. You know, I, I, I put a little bit of trickiness in there, you know, a little bit of contrapuntal stuff. Again, not too much, but trying to stay within the groove. And, and it wasn't just sort of a generous <laughs> uh you know sacrifice on my part to stay with what they had for the most part because i came out of that i came out of blues right i came out of blues mm. and blues rock um so you know i respected the form you know i wouldn't go in the studio you know, wouldn't have gone in with muddy waters and tried to get him to you know add a violin part or something like that so um did they ask yeah. you to audition? Did, did they make you audition or did they just bring you into the band? Uh, well, their manager called me, asked if I wanted to join. And mm -hmm. I said, I thought about it. And then I called them back and said, look, I'll do it for a year. And then they said, yeah, well, come down and play with it. I, it was an audition, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, say, come and audition with us, you know, because we mm -hmm. knew each other so well. But I was auditioning, you know. And Rod Price, I knew, was uh, at first a little concerned that I played with a pick rather than my fingers. Mm. And, I, and I immediately changed to my fingers. Well, that's Partly, very odd for a bass player, right? Bass, bass players are supposed to be plucking with their fingers, right? Well, if you look, you know, at uh, uh, Carol Kay and mm. Paul McCartney, two of the greatest bass players mm. of all time, uh, played with picks. Okay. So and a lot, uh, there are a number of bass players plays with picks. But um, he uh, he just had a thing about it. And and once I started method with it, I had a thing about it, too. It's like, oh, yeah, James Jameson, you know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> I'm going to get that, that smooth sound. Mm. And, uh, yeah. So so you went on the road. So Foghatter are a touring band. 
mm-hmm. right? They're doing a lot of shows. Right. Um, when you agreed to join for a year, w- did you have any reservations about touring or what, what were your thoughts there? Why only a year? Like a lot of people would be, oh my God, I'm joining. This is the this is the, the break of my life here. Yeah. Well, they weren't as big as they came to be then. I think Fool for the City, the record I did with them, and Slow Ride matched them way up. Um, they were doing well though. They mm. were mostly co-headlining and sometime headlining in, you know, big arenas. Um and uh I get my thing was that this is a kind of music I'd done uh, a lot. <laughs> and I was into other things at the time. I was living in Woodstock, New York. And, you know, I was hanging out and playing with guys like Paul Butterfield and Jeff Muldauer and you know, Bonnie Raitt. And, uh, you know, that, that uh, a sort of a more, I guess nowadays they would call it Americana, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sort of a more organic kind of down home thing. And I was getting very influenced by jazz as well. And so I felt, okay, this is fun. I love the guys. I know we'll have a good time. I'm going to do a record with them anyway. It's going to take several months. Um, You know, touring could be fun. But I just didn't want to commit for more than that. Uh, We had an open-ended thing where if I, you know, that I, they said, look, if you change your mind, let's just keep going. Mm -hmm. But by the time, touring got very tedious to me. Um, the kind of touring we would do, uh, playing big arenas, you don't really have any connection with the audience, certainly not as a bass player. I think Dave did, you know, Uh, you know, I'm standing there and it's just bloody loud as hell. And the audience is quite far away from, you can't really even see them. And you just see a lot of people holding up, you know, cigarette lighters, screaming and roaring. And the first time, the first time it was a thrill. It really was. We're heading up from the dressing room and the lights go down and the cigarette lighters go up and there's this roar. It's like, oh, wow, this is cool. What an energy rush. Mm -hmm. But that got old really quick. (laughs) Um, I love playing live. I love playing, you know, I have a blues band here in Iceland. We play in a club. And it's great, you know, you interact with the audience. Uh, I mean, I'll do improvised blues. I'll get a suggestion from the audience. Can't do that in an arena, you know what I mean? No. And, uh, I love that, where you can interact with the audience and the sound is good and you can hear each other. And it's playing a big places like that. It's sort of, it's all, there's a lot of logistics involved, making sure everybody can hear each other. Um trying to compensate for the dreadful acoustics that are usually there. Um, It just wasn't my thing, at least not, uh, you know, if it was my band, it might've been different, but actually when I, when I did go out with a solo band, uh, we opened for Bob Seger and Rush. We did uh, toured with people like that. And still I didn't really love playing those big places. You just, uh, what I love about live playing kind of got stripped out of that for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know people make an effort, like the Stones have made an effort to overcome that. Like a certain part of their, of one tour, they go out on this sort of tongue of the stage and where they have like a very simple drum kit and these tiny little amps and just to get closer to the audience, I think, and do it more, do, do a more intimate thing. Um. And, uh, you know, some people thrive under that uh, in, in that environment, but it wasn't for me, not long term, for sure. And um, what happened then when you so you left Foghat after about a year 
What happened then? Um, I went to San Francisco and I wanted to uh, study music, because which I never had really. Uh, I wanted to study harmony and counterpoint orchestration, stuff like that, uh, which I did for a while. And then I got a call from Paul Butterfield and he wanted to form a band. And you don't say no to Paul Butterfield <laughs> if you're a guitar player. So I went back to Woodstock. And meanwhile, I'd started writing songs in San Francisco, uh, which I hadn't really for a while. I started to write some pretty good songs. I'd written some songs on the, started writing songs on the Fogat tour bus, actually. Mm. And so when I got together with Paul, we mostly did my songs. And, um, but as we rehearsed and, you know, did some little, some gigs at the Joyous Lake in town, I started to feel, I want to do my own thing. You know, looking back, it's like, wait, you playing with Paul Butterfield, what are you, nuts? <laughs> but I had known Paul a long time. I played with him a lot. He was really a mentor of mine as far as playing the blues. I mean, he's just genius. And for, you know, it's hard for me to put myself in my headspace back then, but I just wanted to go do a solo record. And he ended up playing uh, on that record. He, he did uh, several songs on that record. Um so that's how I got, that's what I did after Foggett. I spent many months uh, up in Sharon, Vermont, where we'd done Fool for the City, the studio up on a hill in the middle of the Vermont woods, um, making my first record. And then I went on the road. Uh, I put together a band and went on the road. And uh, that's, and so began my journey away from Foggett, I guess you could say. And then later, um, you, you moved into acting. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really as a result of a, a rock climbing incident. So tell us how rock climbing um, <laughs> initiated a move into acting. And we're talking about mid, we're talking about the mid 80s here, right? Yeah. Um, well, I'd always loved climbing when I was a kid and I was always an idiot because I would solo things, not, not super hard things, you know. And then, uh, I started getting back into it, but meanwhile, you know, the, the level had gone up in terms of what people were doing. Uh, my skills had not, and I ended up soloing something I really shouldn't have and uh, fell off it, screwed up my ankle. I was in and out of the hospital for a year. I broke the talus bone, which is a bad bone to break. Uh, they tried fixing it a number of ways, and they ended up just fusing my ankle. And all of that took about a year. Uh, during the course of that, though, I wasn't idle. Um, uh, Richard uh, Bach, the author of uh, Jonathan Livingston Seagull and Illusions and many other uh, books, and his wife, Leslie, had uh, gotten a hold of my Motown record and really liked it. And they, uh, Motown, sort of hooked us up and put us, got us in communication. Richard was coming out with a new book, uh, One, and they wanted me to write an album to go with the book. <laughs> So uh, I did that. I did. Uh, I demoed up uh, pretty much a double album's worth of stuff while I had my foot in this fixator and I had to keep it elevated at all times. So it was an interesting way to make a record. Um, it never got released because record companies could not get with the idea. I mean, some of them didn't care for the music. Some really liked the music, but they thought this is not. How, how would you describe the music? What 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 style? was it americana hmm. soft rock bluesy jazz what was boy it was pretty eclectic uh the idea was to create a parallel 
take on each chapter of the book. The book is all about parallel universes, about all the paths we could have taken uh, that they actually exist, you know, and Richard and Leslie fly around in their seaplane visiting these alternate realities. Um, and so my thing was to write uh, a song for each chapter that took on the theme, but without sort of Mickey Mousing it, you know, without repeating it, mm. without singing about what's going on in the chapter. So um, I was very let's see who my influences at the time i was i was getting very into steve earl and uh the hooters who are friends of mine um as far as using mandolins and uh sort of more of a i, I don't want to say country because country nowadays is something totally different and it wasn't really old school country either. it was a sign of kind of using country instruments like the mandolin in a rock way uh so I'm, th I'm thinking of Bruce Hornsby. Uh, uh, he has a song. Yeah, called... yeah, yeah. Some of it was. I'm trying to think. I mean, the songs were a little bit different. There's one that reminds me of Peter Gabriel. There's one that, jeez, um, it's, it's hard for me to describe it. Uh, mm. It's it, it's kind of a, a lot of different stuff. Um, is it on Apple Music? Can some can people access it today? Is it no, it's it's never been released. It has never been released because uh, what I all the re the recordings I did they were good recordings but we considered them demos at the time and we were gonna mm. do it again in a quote unquote proper studio but looking back they sounded pretty good not super high fi but pretty good um, I don't know maybe one day I'll release it if uh, <laughs> Richard and Leslie are co okay with it mm -hmm. I'd certainly like to hear it it sounds uh, sounds interesting. Uh, yeah. Very interesting. Um, so you're lying and you're in the hospital. You're working on producing this this album, this eclectic, unusual album for Richard. And Ooh. you decide then, okay, I'm going to move into the world of acting. So how did how did that transition happen? Um, well, I was very disappointed that we couldn't get uh, the Richard Bach record, um, you know, sold. We couldn't mm -hmm. get it picked up. Uh, they were very disappointed and. Uh, at, meanwhile, uh, Motown had just dropped me. You know, they they didn't have any interest in the one album, and uh, you know, I don't think I really wasn't a good fit for that label. Uh, honestly, they were at that time trying to sort of branch out and do different things. It wasn't the Motown that we all remember. Mm. Um, so I was, I think, a casualty of that. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I I lost a lot of money uh, through the whole uh, rock climbing accident. And then I lost my record company and uh, I'm, yeah, my record deal. And I was broke. And uh, I still had this fixator on my leg. You know? <laughs> I'm sort of, I, th I think at this point I was hobbling around a little bit. And a friend of mine uh, did voiceover, uh, a friend, a good friend who I'd known for quite some time, and he'd made his living doing voiceover and acting, but mostly voiceover. Um, and I thought, well, maybe I could do that because I'd done voices and dialects and character voices just for fun all my life. You know, I drive my friends crazy and make my girlfriends want to leave me by just never shutting up. <laughs> imagine living with Robin Williams when he's on. You know, what I, mean? yeah, I can imagine. I, yeah. I had I had no other outlet for it. 
So I made a little demo tape and uh, sent it around to the agents in Atlanta where I was living and uh, immediately started getting work. I thought, okay, this works. And um, the uh, idea of just going into a studio, doing something fun for an hour and uh, getting paid for it <laughs> was very attractive to me mm. rather than getting an advance on an album, spending months and months, and months in the studio, you know, doing everything myself usually. And then maybe the record will get released and maybe it won't. This just, it was, it was more social. It was quicker. It was more immediate. And I liked the work, you know, I liked, I liked that. And that, that led to acting and that led to improv comedy, which I fell in love with. Um, and after about a year of doing that in Atlanta, I figured this, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. I'm going to go to LA. Uh, at this point, I'm 40 years old. You know, you don't go to LA at 40 years old, start an acting career, but I didn't know that. So. <laughs> no, no, yeah. nobody does that. No, nobody does that. I, had a, I had a special skill set though, uh, a particular skill set that, worked out for me and i did get working pretty quickly in voiceover and then in acting and uh started out acting i started out mostly in comedy but then i got uh i ended up probably doing more drama than comedy which was funny because i never considered i you know i never thought i would act at all in fact in atlanta when my agents wanted to send me out for on-camera jobs i said i don't know how to do that <laughs> But uh, just like with Foghat and the bass playing, uh, they threw me in. You know? Say and, yes and learn later, you know. Say That's yes and learn later. Yeah. So I worked very hard, uh, studied very hard. And uh, I, I, improv comedy, really, I, I would say is the basis. That's the thing that showed me the way into acting for me rather mm. than, you know, traditional method acting, I would say. Even though I, I do consider myself a method actor. To an extent now i mean I, a lot of those precepts are the way i work but i definitely came out of improv and when you say method acting are you talking being in character when the camera stops recording are you talking no not so much uh but the idea that you work very hard to understand who the character is mm. uh, in terms of what the writer has written and in terms of what your feeling from the script, what your reaction is and how that, what you can bring to it personally, you know, um, uh, the super, actor's studio concept, the idea of, of uh, yeah. I mean, I, there's a lot of extreme stuff I think went on in the actor's studio. I, I, I didn't agree with a lot of people don't agree with, I guess if I had to point at somebody who I'm more was closely aligned with, it would be Stella Adler, Stella Adler rather than uh, Lee Strasberg. Mm. Um, but just the idea that, you know, you you work very hard to become the character, quote unquote. You know, you there's there's part of it. It's all a, it's a game of make believe. It's, uh, you know, you, you pretend to be this person and the way you do it is not by moving a certain way or talking a certain way. It's by, you know, going inside and trying to think like, the person mm. and figure out what motivates them why are they saying what they're saying why are they doing what they're doing and it is it's a dance between the writer and the actor you know you you read a script and the writer had something in mind and it hits you and you have something in mind you you relate to those words a certain way and it's this kind of symbiosis that happens 
Um, so I guess that's that's what to me method acting is. Uh, when it, when method acting came along, uh, prior to that, it was more what method actors call indicating. Uh, you would uh, it was. Uh, a lot of sort of physical training went into it. it it wasn't and it was more stylized and then you know along comes brando and people like him and they used to say when he walked on a stage it was like you know one of the stage hands was walking on the stage it just all of a sudden looked so much more real than everything else going on and that's what you try to do is uh get to a place of truth of reality with the character so you're doing something that for you is truthful you uh, you find the truth in the character, what's been written, and you relate to it in some kind of truthful way so that you can bring that to life and people can, uh, what was it, Larry Moss says, cellular resonance. <laughs> they can feel cellular resonance with what you're doing, you know, uh, because it's coming out of your eyes. It's coming out of your actions what you're what you're experiencing inside mm. i guess i guess method acting is working from the inside mm. out rather like Lawrence olivier said he worked from the outside in mm. uh, there was he was doing the movie sleuth and uh, apparently he couldn't quite get the character for weeks and weeks and weeks and then one day he comes in wearing a mustache that i got it <laughs> yeah. just that mustache gave him the part <laughs> and you is- never know I, uh, you know i mean that's happened to me before like a physicality uh, you know anything can trigger you you know uh, a tone of voice a physicality uh, a certain line in the script uh this oh that's who this guy is that line i, I remember on lost i played a character on lost who was a very nerdy psychic um very just sort of nerdy uncharismatic guy and he was australian i thought well this is interesting because people think of aussies as you know good old aussies might throw a couple of prawns on the bobby you know <laughs> and here's this very uh, you know timid guy and there was one line in the original script uh the first draft uh that i got to audition with that gave me the character he's sitting in a booth in some sort of arcade offering psychic readings and uh one of the leads in the show come up and uh, emily de Raven come up and say well uh how much how much does it cost to get a reading and he points to the sign and he says uh these are my pricings and that word pricings it just gave me the whole character somehow you know yeah <laughs> yeah because it, somebody else might say rate or somebody else might say cost but pricings yeah. is, is is quite specific yeah, and there's something about it that's kind of um, indicative of who he is. I, yeah, I, I, I totally see that. Yeah, and so then I then somehow that that got me thinking. I wanted to do the voice of Slim Dusty, uh, sort of an old time Australian folks folk singer, I guess you could call. Him. They had a big hit called "A Pub with No Beer," <laughs> and he has a sort of very reedy voice when he sings. He's sort of up here. And also when I was in Melbourne one time, I was watching TV late at night and there was this minister had a similar voice, very sort of nerdy, very sort of weaselly almost. <laughs> yes, we like to come and bring, uh, you know, yeah. it, it was just that whole sort of thing. It's like, okay, I'm going to give him a different kind of Aussie. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so that was, uh, that was very interesting. And because the guy was a psychic that, the way I related to that with I med I meditate a lot. And um 
so uh, that kind of inner perception, you know, seeing things from a place of stillness, that helped a lot with that too. So, I mean, I guess that's an example of how, you know, just you never know what's going to trigger you. A lot of actors, they'd like to just read the script and whatever their first impression is, is invaluable. They feel mm. that's valuable. You know, I don't want to be distracted while I'm reading this first script. I want to, this first time, that's just very important. And sometimes that happens. And sometimes you read something that's like, what the hell am I going to do with this? And you read it 10 more times and you make notes and you create a backstory and you do that. And, you know, you come up with something. <laughs> but it's, also, like, it's like writing a song. <clears throat> Same thing with writing a song. Sometimes mm. it pops out and sometimes you have to work your ass off. But also your ability with accents places you in a, a unique position. You can do multiple accents. You can do lots of different. You I mean you played the Russian president. Mm -hmm. um, accents are hard and they're hard yeah. to do well. So you yeah. have a competitive advantage straight away. So tell me yeah. about 24 and... Uh, did you was it an extensive audition process for that show or how did how did that come about no it originally uh was uh gonna be a three-day job on one episode uh, i did a very quick audition mm. uh, at the time the character was much more putin-esque as opposed to putanesque did he have a little <laughs> cat and uh was he a, was he a villainous i haven't seen the show but was he a, was he a villainous creature or, or was he, he was uh, a bit. at that oh, time okay. And on, in that draft of the script, yeah, he was he was a hard ass. And uh, I played him that way in the audition. Hmm. Um, but then they changed the script and he, he was less of a hard ass. And so I ended up playing him sort of like the uh, ambassadors and embassy people I'd been surrounded by uh, growing up in when I grew up, the, the years I spent in Europe. Because once we're in Philadelphia, we, we spent a couple of years in Greece, uh, a couple of years in Italy. And uh, my dad would interact with these uh, embassy people. And they were all very elegant and well-spoken and well-educated and sort of gracious. So I brought a little bit of that to him, which is miles away from where it started out in the first draft. And... It seemed to work for them, you know, because they mm. picked up on that and they ended up making me uh, almost one of the good guys, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I was like, I always felt I was the one person on that show who didn't play status because uh, mm. that show is all about playing status, especially in the CTU. <laughs> you know, somebody walks in the door and they're a new person, you know, who's come to, who've come to uh, take over a job. You know, they're going to play high status. They're just going to mm. talk down. That, that's really what the show is. And I didn't do that. Um, so I was, uh, my wife and I, uh, Kathleen Gotti, who played my wife, we actually ended up being set up as the sane couple, the functional couple, as opposed to uh, Greg Gibson and Gene Smart uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, couple, which were uh, b very dysfunctional, you know, and a central part of the plot. Their, their dysfunctionality was a central part of the plot. Um, and then in the last season, they made me the bad guy, which was great. Because uh, two things you hope for on 24. One, don't kill me. And two, <laughs> make me the villain. Please make me the villain. Because mm -hmm. they're great at that. You know, you're watching a whole season and you think somebody's the good guy and boom. No, they killed everybody. So it turned out that I killed everybody in uh, in season eight. 
And tell me when you're when you're going on to a show like that, right? Um, and I've spoken to a couple of people about this before. Um, you're obviously quite nervous. You're going into a show, a, a pretty damn big show. Mm -hmm. How do you manage? How were you able to? Like, did you kind of ease yourself into it? Like, where where you've got to be confident to get on that set, right? Yeah. Well, I've been doing it for a while. Um, I guess I'm a bit of a ham. I rarely had full-blown stage fright, I would say. Mm. Um, I feel in a way I haven't been as intimidated by working with great actors as I should have been at some times. <laughs> you know, that, uh, but I felt pretty comfortable that they're very, um, they're very tight family. Uh, you know, everybody from the hair and makeup to the sound people, the light people, the actors, everybody's just really glad to be there. Mm. Uh, as in most shows I've ever worked on, everybody's just really glad they've got a great job. They love what they do and they're making good money and they're grateful for it. And mm. uh, it was a very laid back set. And um, I, I would say improvised dialogue more on that show than any other one. <laughs> which is the last thing you would think because it's this heavy duty drama show mm. and so tight and punchy, but you know, if you, and I saw with the other actors with Greg and Gene, it's like, uh, can I say this instead of this? I mean, sure, whatever, you know, and sometimes they'd ask me, you know, okay, I want you to be on the phone, but uh, we don't know what you're supposed to be saying. So just make something up. And uh, you know, it, and it was well that's it, where the improv skills come into it that's where your confidence is as an improvised an improvisational artist as well and that's where all the stand-up comedy comes in that's mm -hmm. where all, all of these pieces the musicality all of it comes mm -hmm. together at yeah. a certain time right to uh life experience to be able to do that and to handle it um yeah i suppose yeah i suppose also having performed musically you know most of my life Ever since I, you know, went to uh, uh, elementary schools when I was in elementary school and played these little made-up songs and stuff, mm. um, all of that had given me a sense of comfort. Uh, I don't know about confidence, but but comfort performing. Um, and the fact is, I'm almost more relaxed with three cameras pointing at me than I am walking into a room with people I don't know. Um, in fact, I would say I'm definitely more relaxed there. Why do you <laughs> think that is? I don't know. There's a certain zen to it. There's a certain focus to it. Um, you're there. You know exactly what you're doing. Um, you like what you're doing. You know, you're feeling the buzz off the other actors. Uh, hard to say. I mean, as far as the relaxants, why I feel focused and comfortable and relaxed there more than other situations, I don't. I don't really know for sure. I really don't. Um, when I get nervous, I guess it was more doing a play when I, you know, worry about blowing a line or something like that. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know why, but uh, I'm, I'm grateful that it is that way because it's uh, allowed me to enjoy the process. So you, you took a, you moved into acting for 17 years. You were, you were away from music. For 17 years yeah what happened when you came back to music after that break what was the, the world of music like mm, it's very different um during my acting years i had uh 
been doing a lot of improv comedy and my strength, my main thing in improv comedy is musical improv comedy, making up songs. Mm. Um, I, I'm really good at that. And in those days, I, you know, made the most of that and, and got a lot of, you know, I got jobs from that. And so that was, that was my relation to music uh, during those years. I don't think I really wrote any songs in those years, or if I did, I don't remember them. Um, when I came back, uh, I would say a lot of it had to do with the fact that you could make a record on a laptop computer. Hmm. Uh, you didn't need a studio. You didn't need a whole huge... I had a studio in my house before, but it was huge, you know. You could make a record on a set, you know, you could be in your dressing room, you could be in a trailer, you know, uh, with a little keyboard and be recording your record. <laughs> and so that was part of it. That's part of what got me into it. Uh, that was also, um, I had had a big life change. I'd gone through two years of being very, uh, very ill. Um I had bipolar disorder. It was undiagnosed at the time. I didn't know what it was, but I, I spent two years just being non-functional. And when I crawled back from that, I was just, I was in a very emotional place, I guess. And that wanted to come out in music, I think. Wanted to come out in songs. So uh, I guess those two things, the fact that you could, that it wasn't as big a deal to, to record something. Mm. And... Um, that I just sort of needed to at that time. And well, bipolar would have been a lifelong condition. Mm -hmm. right? But you only you sought help or guidance or you were you, you got it diagnosed then following years and years of, of it being undiagnosed. How what was that yeah. like? How does that happen? Like well, I didn't know. Like when as growing up, I didn't know what it was. Mm. Uh, I just thought it was me. Uh, you know, that's uh, most undiagnosed by bipolars. They just think this is the kind of person I am. I start things and I don't finish them. I get real excited about something and then decide that it's crap. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm very social. And then all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, I'm not social. And I don't want to see anybody. There's just something. That's who I am. I'm an asshole. You know? <laughs> um, and uh, in fact, you know, you learn that your whole life, you learn that that's who you are. And I think a lot of bipolar treatment, like in bipolar, the primary uh, line of treatment is medication. It really has to be. It's, it's, a, it's a neurological disease and it's genetic. And you have to, you have to uh, manage it with medication, but you need talk therapy too. And for me, the main reason was to understand what had happened and how it shaped my behavior and the way I think uh, about myself and about doing about everything really. So, you know, as I was growing up, I, I wasn't a type one uh, bipolar who went crazy manic. I'm type two who goes from being normal or maybe somewhat hyper hypomanic to long periods of depression. Um, so it was, you know, there wasn't a big red flag, uh, sticking out and certainly not when i was a kid i there was a much less awareness of things like that um uh my folks sent me to psychiatrists when i was a kid just because they thought i wasn't very happy 
I didn't find out two years later that that's why they sent me <laughs> at the time it was just like, oh, I got another stupid thing I got to do. And plus I got to leave school for two hours to go do it. And, uh, uh, and it did absolutely no good. They had no clue what was going on with me. Mm. It's just a lot of nonsense. And, uh, so I didn't even think in terms of that, that that had anything to offer me. And, uh, as time went on, I got, you know, I, I was, I tried to make myself a better person through, uh, sort of natural medicine and spiritual practices, which, you know, are a huge part of my life really. Um, but there was always this thing that I was fighting and it got worse and worse. It started out, uh, very physical, like be, becoming allergic to every kind of food, and just getting brain fog all the time and getting really bad depressions. And this really most started after I moved to L.A. Uh, you know, moving to L.A. was great. I immediately started having a good time and making good contacts and having a good, you know, but physically I was a mess. And I went to a number of naturopathic doctors to try to figure out what was wrong. And they all thought, well, you've got chronic fatigue. And they would try to treat it with homeopathic remedies or with herbs or with this or with that. None of it did anything. And uh, one doctor uh, suggested I take Prozac, which was a new thing at the time. Uh, he gave me a book to read, Listening to Prozac. And uh, I thought, uh, I read it, and it's very pro-Prozac. And, mm -hmm. uh, and in the book, you see people who take it who are not necessarily depressed or don't think they're depressed, but they just start feeling better. And it detail, details all the way they do feel better and are more productive or creative. Where I said, oh, man, where has this been all my life? So I started taking it and it worked um, for a while. <laughs> it worked. And then at one point I started noticing this cycling happening because I hadn't been given any kind of mood stabilizer to go with it. Uh, you know, you can't really just give a bipolar an antidepressant uh, because it'll tend to kindle them you know, in, into cycling. So mm -hmm. that started to happen. And I got worried about that. And also I started hearing a lot of negative things about Prozac there. I mean, there was a huge backlash to Prozac that came after the listening to Prozac years. Uh, people were having a hard time getting off it or people would come off it and feel suicidal or, you know, I think it was the first of the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and it was kind of a new thing, and people didn't understand it. They, in the book, listening to Prozac, uh, it says the guy says there are no known withdrawal effects. Complete bullshit. Uh, terrible withdrawal effects if you just stop it. Anyway, I was hearing all of these negative things about Prozac. I figured I'd stop it, and I I did, and that's when things got really bad. Um, and why exactly? At the time, I thought, well, Prozac has destroyed me. It has ruined my life. Uh, but what I think really happened was that it kindled the bipolar uh, because I wasn't taking a mood stabilizer. And then stopping it also kindled a cycling thing. Uh, and I just got in worse shape than I've ever been in my life. Just absolute bottom of the bottom of the barrel depression. <laughs> and it went up for months and months and years. And then after about a year that I actually about a year that I would say I would get these brief periods of hypomania. Uh, and uh, I asked one of my naturopathic doctors because I, 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 I felt like I don't want to go to any, I don't want to take any more psychiatric drugs. That's the devil. I don't want to do that. So I went to mm. naturopathic doctors and tried all these remedies again. Um, 
And I asked one guy, I said, this is what's happening to me. Am I manic depressive? He said, no, there's no such thing. No, it's just toxicity of this and blah, blah, blah. So I just kept trying to do that. I moved out of LA for most of the time. I was in a cabin up in the woods, just hiding from the world. And uh, it just got worse and worse and worse. And then it got to the point where I just sort of hit bottom. I got an audition to go in and audition to be the host of a comedy show. And I went in, I felt horrible. I told my agent, listen, I'm in terrible shape. She said, listen, this is really going to be a show. You got to go in and do this. I just, I couldn't. I went in there and I sucked. And, uh, and I'm walking out just feeling horrible and also thinking to myself, the daily show, what kind of stupid name is that for a show? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe if I'd have been healthy, we never would have had John Stewart, which would have. Been I was just going to say, I, we're talking John Stewart's Daily Show here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which would have been a great loss to mankind. Um, uh, I don't think I would have got that part anyway. But that was that was the bottom for me. And uh, I talk, talk, asked my friend D. Marcus, who I call my fairy godmother, is sort of the one of the leading lights of improv comedy in L.A. Uh, I just told her my situation. She said, I know a guy you need to see. And she introduced me to the guy who became my psychiatrist and has been since then. And who literally saved my life. Literally saved my life. Uh, within half an hour, he diagnosed me. He figured out what had been going on. I showed him charts that I had been keeping for about a year, these graphs of my moods. And you can see. Uh, 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 uh. And I had thought it was, oh, this is toxicity running out. This is Prozac kicking back in and then stopping. I had all these theories as to what was going on because people were telling me bipolar didn't exist. He said, no, it's mood swings, it's bipolar. And we just started trying different medications. And uh, remote trogen. Uh, uh, yeah, that's what I'm taking now. We started out with Depakote, actually. I think Depakine is the a generic name. Um, that worked well. Uh, the uh, Lamotrigen or Lamictal is the brand name is called. Um, that worked even better. And uh, then we added, we tried adding different antidepressants. At first, I was very hesitant because of what had happened with Prozac, but he gave me a little understanding of what had happened. So we went through a number of antidepressants and some would work okay. Some would be really not good. And we just kept tweaking it. He's very intrepid. And so was I at that point. You know, I'd survived two years uh, being non-functional, trying to fix myself. And now I was somewhat functional and I was determined to get all the way functional. And so we just tried everything and we're relentless. And, you know, now uh, I'm on a combination that I've been on for a number of years and I feel better than I ever have. And I have, I have been feeling that way for a long time. Um, I don't know, you know, several decades, really. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I would say to anybody who's got bipolar out there, don't give up, you know, because I know a lot of people try a medication, a mood stabilizer, and it numbs. Like back in the days of lithium, when people would, that was the primary line of defense, uh, had a lot of side effects, and people just feel numbed out. And especially bipolar ones who have these, you know, flights of mania, they're gone. Uh, the depression's 
gone, but just this kind of blah feeling takes over. And so they stop taking it and then they get worse again. And, um, you know, a lot of people have that experience with medication. They'll try one, but they don't do well with it and they give up or they try two or they try three and, and they give up. Um, but I think if you're bipolar, you got to recognize that you've got to take medication and just keep trying until you find a combination that works. I mean, my life is testament to the fact that you can do that, that you can get to a point where you don't feel like you're taking drugs. You don't feel blot out. You know, you got your creativity, you got your energy and all of that. Um, I feel the way I should have my whole life, really, <laughs> you know. And tell me, when you were in the cabin in the woods, when this thing progressively worse, did you, um, were you tempted, like a lot of people will do, to self-medicate? Alcohol, um, recreational drugs, was any of that in the picture? No. Um, I didn't really drink in those days at all. Um, I don't think I tried to self-medicate with that at all. I did try with like energy drinks and things. I mean, this is pre-Red Bull, but there were still, there were things that would have Guarana or something in it that would, and, and that didn't work. You know, you it'd make me feel better for 10 minutes and then crash. Uh, trying to think if I did anything else to self-medicate. You know, caffeine, I would just drink caffeine like a maniac just to keep my head above ground. But no, not with drugs. Um, good, good. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, like I've, I've been to LA a couple of times and, you know, you do see people with mental illness, you know, you skid row. I'm thinking, I'm thinking the kind of descent that people take. Yeah. Mm -hmm. when, for undiagnosed conditions um, and the self medication that they, they, they become involved in and childhood trauma and stuff like that. I was also thinking about when you were in hospital with a broken foot. Thank God fentanyl wasn't around. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. they would have been pumping that shit into you. Yeah, well, they pumped uh, Demerol, a lot of Demerol. And uh, then when I was out of the hospital for a long time, I would take things like Percodan. And um, I never got into trouble with it, but I, I saw how people can get into trouble with it. And, you know, I knew about that, so I was careful with it. Mm. I only took it when I had to. Uh, yeah, fentanyl, I'm glad that never happened. <laughs> so am I. But when you uh in your work now, you're doing a lot of stand-up comedy, right? Mm -hmm. Do you talk about any of this? Um, the only time I do is when I perform with a group called My Voices Have Tourette's, which is a wonderful group of stand-up comics who all have various disorders. Um uh one guy's bipolar, another guy's got extreme social anxiety. Uh, two people have Tourette's, um, one is autistic and bipolar, uh, you know, there's, uh, and, and they, they talk about this stuff and they do great comedy sets about it. It's, uh, really inspiring. Uh, you know, they've won awards at festivals and they're great. And sometime I'll, I'll sit in with them and, uh, that's when I talk about it. You know, that's when I do comedy about it. And, uh. I, I haven't done it on my own. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure why. Um, I guess I'm just more interested in talking about other things. <laughs> Maybe at some point I will, but uh, that's my outlet for talking about that. 
Well, there's there is a there is potentially a treasure chest, a treasure trove of stuff of material in there, um, if it can be repackaged in a comedic yeah. way. But also, it's very personal and very very. You know, I know a lot of artists. I just think a lot of artists, when they get very personal, they have a way of um, connecting. Yeah, no, it it is personal. Um, uh, yeah, perhaps I will go into that. You know, during those years, I kept a journal, uh, very long journal and very detailed about everything I was going through. And... Uh, you know, one, I think the first time that my voices had threats asked me if I would, you know, uh, perform with them, I said, well, hard for me to find anything funny about all that crap I went through. <laughs> I would probably get up on stage and say, hey, if you're bipolar, take your meds. <laughs> Don't stop. <laughs> um, but I did, you know, there was one period when I was... Uh, I guess uh, during one hypomanic episode, uh, I, I related in a comedic bit about where I was doing Shakespeare in Bakersfield, California, of all places. And I decided to speak Shakespearean English on stage and off. Oh, there's your method acting right there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that made a very funny bit being in Bakersfield, California, the asshole of the world. <laughs> I think I've been through, I think I went through Bakersfield on a bus many, many yeah. years ago on my way to San Francisco. Yeah, um, going through it is is you know the way to go. Actually, yeah. I had I had a fun time there. I can't I shouldn't diss Bakersfield, but uh, it is not the place where you walk around speaking Shakespearean English. <laughs> so you um you moved to Iceland in two thousand and fourteen. Yes. So tell me, like I mean, yeah, Iceland, Los Angeles, Los Angeles, Iceland. What what prompted that move? What were you thinking about? Was it a uh, well, I, I came to visit. Mm -hmm. I'd seen a Bobby Fisher documentary and that put the the word Ricky in my head. And uh, when it came Christmas time, my parents had passed and uh, I wanted to go somewhere Christmassy and somewhere without a lot of tourists, which there weren't at the time and somewhere I'd never been. So I thought, oh, I'll go to Reykjavik. So I did, and little did I know I'd fall in love with it. I just fell in love with it right away. It's just something about it. The The minute I got off the plane, it was just like, oh, I like this. And then I started walking around. What, what's, what's the this? What is it? It's a spiritual connection. That's at the heart of it. There's, I have a spiritual connection to this place. I, it's really hard to explain. I mean, there's, I can tell you a zillion things I like about it that I love about Reykjavik. I love about Iceland. Um, uh, you know, you mentioned Los Angeles. Uh, Reykjavik is the polar opposite of Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a huge, sprawling place. You can't survive without a car. Everybody lives, you know, 20 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour away from each other. <laughs> you know, it's very hard to sort of keep in contact with your friends and, you know, you go play a gig or something and you don't hang out afterwards because you got to be sober to drive home and uh, nobody stays out very late. And I don't know, it's just a very disconnected vibe compared to Reykjavik, which is just this tiny small town that thinks it's a city. Uh, but, you know, it's a small town that has all the city stuff in it, you know, uh, venues and 
pubs and restaurants and just all kinds of stuff. Great creative scene, but it's all very compact. So you just bounce from one thing to the other. You know, I, I don't even have a car. I just walk everywhere. You know, I can do three gigs a night. I can do a comedy show and then go to a blues show and then go see somebody else play a show or, you know, and then everybody gets together and goes to somebody's house and, you know, has an after party. <laughs> it's just, it's a very different lifestyle. Uh, and uh, I would say I, I made, by the time I had been there three times, the third time I was there, I, I decided to move. Uh, I'd probably made, I'd made more friends there than I had in the rest of the world combined. Like, pretty good friends you know so here's what i'm wondering like do you think it's possible that a city like los angeles can exacerbate mental health issues if you if you are somebody with bipolar los angeles the place you do not want to be you need to be um, in places like Reykjavik, where there's a sense of community and a shared kind of uh there's something you know you know what i'm getting at yeah, yes and no, I would say. Um, I know for me, yeah, it is a more isolating city, which is not good. Mm. Uh, you got massive air pollution, which doesn't help anything. Um, there's the stress of driving everywhere. None of that helps. On the other hand, here in Reykjavik, you know, I, Iceland has one of the highest antidepressant uses in the world. Now, I think a lot of that is because psychiatry is kind of behind the curve here. Um, it's one of the critiques, one of the few critiques I have of uh, Iceland. Um, they're just a little behind here. And I know a lot of people, I know a lot of bipolars who uh, self-medicate or that are misdiagnosed with ADHD and given speed and get worse. Mm. Uh, I know a lot of people uh, in fact, in, even in our comedy uh, scene, a lot of people are struggling with stuff, you know, bipolar, anxiety, depression, ADHD, anxiety. Uh, so I think, again, like definitely bipolar and some of these other ones, too, uh, are not just situationally caused or caused by your upbringing or anything like that. A lot of it is physical, you know. Genetic. And of course, you know, there's a relationship, a documented relationship between creativity and bipolar. Mm -hmm. A lot of creative people tend to be bipolar for whatever reason. And um, so as far as Reykjavik being a better place to be bipolar, I, I guess it is. I, I It's a better place to be connected to other humans which is always good although sometimes when you're really depressed you don't want to see anybody around anybody yeah <laughs> a friend of mine uh, thor hotler very good comedian he's got social anxiety <laughs> you know his comedy said he talks about what covid was like you can't be with any more than 10 people fine with me that's way too much <laughs> he loved covid <laughs> i don't i don't have to go out i don't have to talk to anybody perfect no, there there oh, were yeah. some benefits. When when COVID hit me, uh, when I first started working from home, I was delighted for a couple of months. I was mm -hmm. thrilled. The isolation, the solitude, I loved it. Um, I lived in London for three years, and by the end of that three years, uh, London is like seven and, and probably twenty four million people, twelve million people in the greater metropolitan area. 
it was uh, grim. Yeah. And, uh, I had to get out of there and get to Berlin because it was just such an, an isolating. It's a strange um, dichotomy. You're in a, you're millions, millions of people, but you've never felt so alone. Yeah. And you in a small little community like Reykjavik, you just feel, I, I would imagine you would just feel totally part of of a community but human beings i mean if you and you don't even need to study the, the history of ev evolution to understand that we're tribal creatures yeah and, and need to live in tribes and yeah small tribes essentially um, yeah that's that that works for me for sure mm. um i know a lot of icelanders think i'm crazy for living here because they want to be in la where it's sunny and you know and if they're into comedy they want to you know advance their careers and 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 whatnot and you know, I hear from a lot of people, yeah, I don't want to walk down the street and see the person I slept with last week, you know, or see my ex-wife, you know, and you're going to see them. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just so small. Everybody knows everybody. Half the people are related to each other. It really is a tight little thing. And then and a lot of people do complain about that. They don't care for it. For me, it works. I love it, you know. Um Having been bipolar most of my life, uh, you know, being, you know, experiencing bipolar most of my life and not being very social and not being, I don't know, I got, I got more social when I got into acting a lot more, a lot more, but it was still, and, and that plus living in LA tends to cut down in your socializing because everything's so disconnected so when i got here i realized man i need this i need a social life i need to hang out with my friend i need to see my friends regularly i need to go out and have a drink and talk shit and laugh and you know uh half the reason i do comedy probably is just to hang out you know with the gang social, afterwards man. you know I, mean, I have a theory that a great deal of what human beings do is an excuse to hang out afterwards you know like that's where the fun is <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh so yeah i just found that i need this uh the person i am that i've come to be needs this kind of social connection i and i look back when i go back to la and i drive around and it's like how the hell did i ever do this you know how did i do this how did i live without what i have now and um, would you have any fears about in terms of you're you're separated now from the industry to a, to a little bit of ex the, the platforms and technologies helping us do mm -hmm. self tapes and auditions was that we, we, did you factor that into your thinking when you were when you made the move were I did I I did but I felt that um I felt that fuck it you know, it was more important to me how I spent my hours and my days, you know. That's why I think it comes down to how are you spending the hours of your days? How are you spending each day? Are you driving around going to auditions and uh, then going home exhausted? Or are you, you know, having coffee with a friend and then, you know, have lunch with somebody else and then go out and see somebody play a gig and then do a show and go, you know, and then just all this stuff, you know, it's, you know, how I spend my hours and minutes is more important to me than how, than if my career advances. And the way I feel about it now is that I'm more interested in writing my own stuff, creating my own stuff, my own shows, 
uh, doing stuff with other people also. Um, then I am in, you know, getting a recurring part on a TV show or something. I mean, you know, I mean, if I get that call, I, I do still audition for stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I like doing it, but I'm not going to live in L.A. Uh, just to keep continue doing that. Uh, it doesn't make me as happy. And um, in terms of United States itself, um, I think when we were talking about this the other day, and it was Rudyard Kipling that said, "What does ye of what does what does ye of England know that only England knows?" Mm. So, what have you learned about the United States being apart from it? Well, a lot of what's happened since I've been here. Shortly after I got here, Donald Trump appeared, and. Uh, I I think I recognize who and what he is before anybody uh, for a number of reasons. And uh, that's that really, when I think of America now, I think of it in crisis because this guy is still out there and he could win again. And I think he's very dangerous. And I think what he's done to the country is horrible. Uh, the extreme divisiveness, it, you know, it had already started a while before, but he just amped it up. And, you know, the, this post, post-truth era we're living in now, where you can have a guy like, what's his name, George Santos, the Santos. Who, who lied his way into Congress. Uh, and none of the people in his party seem to have a problem with it. Um, and it's just, the no lying is the norm now. You know, nothing has to be true. Uh, you know, I mean, nothing Trump says is true ever. Uh, or if it's true, it's true by accident. Um, and so when I look at America, honestly, I look at America and I see Trump. You know, the America that I come from, you know, I'll always love, you know, the music. Uh, it made me who I am. Mm. You know, the the unique culture of America is just great. Uh, but if you ask me what I see from Iceland, I see Trump, you know, and uh, I'm deathly afraid of what's going to happen, you know, if he gets in power again. Yeah, I look at I look at the United States and I, uh, part of me sees Trump, a part of me sees Obama mm. and Obama was elected and reelected. Mm -hmm. Right. So he had to get reelected. So it wasn't an accident. I mean, you're talking. Yes, there is obviously a percentage of the United States. Like Trump is the symptom of a problem. Mm -hmm. He's the, the vomit on the kitchen floor, right? He's the, the what follows something else. And I wonder, and I just wonder what is, I haven't been to the United States in 10 years, but I just wonder what's going on. And I suspect it might have something to do with income, growing income inequality. Well, probably, yeah, uh, the outsourcing of jobs. I mean, there are real reasons that people who follow Trump decided follow to follow Trump. They're not all, uh, you know, racist, you know, people who want, who want an authoritarian leader. Mm -hmm. uh, but he is, yeah, if he's the vomit on the floor, he's a malignant alien vomit that can get up and eat you. Um, so, yeah, you, in a way, he was able to rise as he did because of what's going on in the country. That is true. Um, 
he suckered a whole group of people into thinking he was going to help them. And they do need help. You know, uh, I mean, people in rural America whose jobs have been outsourced, uh, you know, there's just all kinds of reasons uh, why that a whole group of people is very dissatisfied. And he came in and said, I'm your guy. Mm. He's not their guy. You know, he, he's not the guy. He's a malignant narcissist who just wants power and doesn't care about anybody but himself. So, yeah, I would say in a way he's a symptom, but he he is also a cause uh, and a very powerful cause. I mean, these kind of people, uh, malignant narcissists, are just extremely powerful because they don't give a fuck. They'll do or say anything, and they enjoy hurting people. They enjoy causing chaos and messing things up and just, you know, I read Donald Trump's quick Twitter feed, you know, that's all you got to do. Um, so, yeah, he's a symptom, but what I see, I, I don't see him as a symptom. When I look at him, I look at him as something to be, to be scared of and to uh, do something about. You, you know? see him as the protagonist. I do. I see him as, yeah, because I think as bad as, you know, the divisiveness was with is with Fox News and right wing radio. And then, you know, and then on the other hand, the left with their uber wokeness and, you know, trying to uh, make everybody think like them. There is all of that. But he's, you know, I mean, you could say that in Germany, Hitler was a symptom of this huge discontent after World War One. Germany had just been humiliated and defeated and screwed over by the Versailles Treaty, the Versailles Treaty is, you know, everybody there saw it. And along comes this guy and says, I'm going to make Germany great again. And, uh, you know, he had some like a 90% approval rating. <laughs> he did better than Trump. <laughs> um, so yeah, in a way he was a symptom of what was going on there, but then look what happened. He became the cause of something mm -hmm. much worse. So, and I, so that's the way I look at Trump, you know, when he was president, you know, I just think this guy could launch a nuclear weapon because he had a bad hair day. Uh, th there's nothing this guy won't do. There's no bottom. Uh, there's no lie he won't tell. There's nobody he won't hurt. And I think now America's in a very precarious place. The Democrats have Biden and they got nobody else. They're not even trying to get anybody else. They're just, okay, yeah, I guess we're going to go with Biden. Yeah, Biden's still pretty good. Yeah, mm. You know, Biden does not have a good approval rating, even among Democrats. Um, and the Republicans, the only people they're even thinking about running are Trumpers. They're Trump light, and Trump will eat them for breakfast. I mean, Ron DeSantis is going to go up against Trump. His whole thing is being <laughs> Trumpy. You know, same with Nikki Haley. You know, she worked for him. She's going to get crushed. You you know, a, a malignant narcissist is a black belt in the art of destruction. They can't stand up to him. He'll destroy them. Uh, so as it looks now, he's going to be the nominee unless he ends up in prison, which I kind of doubt. And I don't know what the Democrats are thinking. You know, I really don't. I, you know, you know, Biden's a good man, but I can he take on Trump again. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't yeah, know. I think what in it's 2020 
before is the election, right? So yeah. <clears throat> if the economy is in good shape and if there's some kind of closing of the gap, I don't think Trump has a chance. Maybe not in the general election, yeah. Um, I think as of now, I don't see him not getting the nomination. Um, but I could be wrong. Uh, yeah, if things do get better, if things look up, of course, nowadays, things can look up as much as they want, and the other side is going to spin it that they're getting worse. Mm. And that's just what happens. There is no reality anymore. It's just who who who, who yells the loudest. Mm. But yeah, if the numbers are up, gas prices are reasonable. You know, Biden does some of these things he talked about in the State of the Union about making small things easier for the ordinary person. If he keeps, if he keeps uh, the course steady, yeah. You know, maybe people will will pick him, but I think it's probably going to be him versus Trump, and Trump is going to be ten times worse than he ever was, and he's going to do a lot of damage even if he doesn't win, and he's going to say he won even if he didn't, and that you know he'll probably instigate more violence. Uh, this is just as long as he's there you know, pissing in the pot. Uh, things are going to go bad, you know, bad things are going to happen. So. Do you think there are there are guardrails in place constitutionally? And like you, you do see, he was in a grand jury investigation. There was, a, there was some kind of deposition he had to make a couple of weeks. It looks like the system is acting to against him in some capacity, in some shape, that the, the guardrails are there. He's been sued uh, several thousand times, <laughs> you know, lost a lot of them. He comes out on the courthouse steps and declares that he won every time, whether he did or not. Mm -hmm. uh, stuff just seems to bounce off of him. Mm -hmm. um, there are guardrails, but, you know, there's things like, oh, we can't go after Trump now because he's a candidate. He's a declared candidate. This will be bad for the country, things like that. Uh, there were, you know, I mean, people, when people talk about impeachment, even they were saying, you know, this is bad for the country, you know, to impeach is bad for the country to mm. prosecute an ex-president, all that kind of thinking. Um, I wish they would throw him in jail and throw away the key. Uh, but it, that's, that's, a, that's a hard job, you know, mm. something like this. I don't know if they're going to nail him on any of this. I really, really don't. Uh, there's a huge chunk of the American population that thinks he won the election, that January 6th was totally justified, that the whole Russia investigation was a hoax. Uh, and there's a smaller amount to think that Democrats drink the blood of babies, you know? Well, they, they, they think that Hillary Clinton keeps babies in a, a pizza bar, a pizza right, restaurant. Right, right, right. You know, yeah. it's, like there, there is some fantastical ideas out there, probably on both sides of the divide, mm -hmm. but particularly on the right. Yeah. Um, conspiracy, fantasy, woe is me, the world is against us, all this kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, and if I'm a, you know... If you look at, if I'm a, a Pennsylvania steel worker who's for the last 20 years is watching his his plant close down and his his opportunities and then he's he, and he's working for, you know, ten dollars an hour, flipping mm -hmm. burgers, um, 
he's going to find it hard which way does he vote because he only has two options yeah right so when you vote for trump you're you're pulling the pin in the grenade yeah that's what you're doing yeah you vote for the democrats you're voting for the status quo if you're mm. flipping burgers you might as well pull that pin yeah <laughs> reminds me of what jim jeffrey said about um yeah you know again donald trump appeals to people in that situation he pushes their button he does it by blaming it on an other he finds yeah. another to blame it on uh, rather than taking a constructive view on anything it's the fault you know it's the fault of the foreigners the immigrants uh the democrats the liberals you know it's everybody's fault and everybody sucks except me and my people um but it's all bullshit he has nothing to offer anybody you know he's not going to help the working person no. he's not gonna, he's, he's not going to help anything he's not even capable of it you know i mean aside from everything else he's just woefully incompetent and i i must have read i'm just finishing up uh and it was called trump versus the united states or something uh i've read a zillion books the ones everybody knows about and the ones people mary did you read the mary trump book yeah yeah so that was fun. I didn't yeah that. yeah yeah and you see his whole life and what he's done and uh how he is and uh he ain't gonna change you know he ain't gonna change he's not gonna go away he's not gonna if he runs and loses he's not gonna accept it you know a malignant narcissist can never be seen to lose you know like he said he's had all these court cases and he always spins it that he won that is to his advantage somehow and uh, I, I didn't think he was going to accept the results of the last election. You know, I lost is not where it's going to ever come out of his mouth, you know. And not again. So tell yeah. me, um, apart from psychiatry, what could Iceland learn from America? What else does America do really well that you think? Uh... Hmm. Interesting question. I don't know. I think we're doing pretty good here. <laughs> That's the uh, feeling I'm getting. Yeah. I mean, America's America. It has this long history of, you know, I as a musician, I look at the music that comes out of there, which is just, you know, world shaking. Mm. Um, you know, it's the center of a lot of things, you know, movies, fashion, blah, 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 science, innovation. But it's a big place. You know, it's a huge place. Iceland is the size of a town in Boise, Idaho. You know, it's, uh, you know, and I think there's a reason probably why there's not a lot of great psychiatrists here is because they can make more money going elsewhere. They want to be in the big centers, you know, they want to mm -hmm. work at the big teaching hospitals or whatever. Um, it's, you know, there's such different places. I mean, just size alone, I think they're 340,000 people here in, in in the whole country maybe 200,000 in Reykjavik and um what could Iceland learn from America I don't know <laughs> lower the prices on restaurants maybe <laughs> I hear they're I hear they're terribly expensive and um so last question what what does the future hold for Nick Jameson 
Um, well, right now I'm really into, uh, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to shoot some music videos of some of my uh, comedy songs. Um, I am not a big fan of the 15 second TikTok piece and the 60 second Instagram thing and having to do that every day to let people know you exist and that's how you gain a following and that's how you succeed. I, I find that very hard to relate to. Mm. Um, I've got to find some way of getting my stuff out there uh, that works for me and just little snippets of whatever doesn't, you know, so I'm going to, I'm going to record these songs. I'm going to promote the hell out of them. Um, I'm going to put together an album of straight ahead songs and comedic songs. I'm going to keep doing stand up and see where that goes. Uh, I'm going to start filming everything. I'm going to film it in good quality. I also don't go with this thing that, no, just do any kind of crappy quality. Just get it out there every day. Put stuff out there. It doesn't matter if it's any good. Just get it out there. Get it out there. Get it out there. Engage your fans. No, I want to work on something. And when it's ready, I want to put it out. Um, so that's what I'm looking at doing. I'm hoping to take my uh, improv comedy band which hasn't performed in many years, to Edinburgh this year. Uh, we're having financial issues with it right now. But uh, that I'd be very excited about if we can do it. Is the Edinburgh I, Fringe Festival? Yeah, Edinburgh Fringe Festival, yeah. Uh, we have a, it, it's Gary Anthony Williams, uh, Fusby Morse, and myself. We have a three-piece band. We go on stage with like 16, 18 instruments, and then we swap around and play them all. We play songs and all these different styles and all these different kind of mashups. So we improvise all the lyrics mm. and uh, there's nobody doing that. There's nobody that I know of, not, you know, known anyway. And there's a lot of it, musical improv has come a long way since I was doing it in LA. A lot of freestyle rappers. There's a lot of, you know, improvised musicals, uh, improvised, you know, Shakespeare and Jane Austen and, you know, my friend Dan O'Connor, and Brian Lohman, both of these guys in L.A. are just doing tons of that long-form improvised stuff and uh, a lot of it musical. Um, but a band, and we're an actual kick-ass band, you know. We go out and we rock it. And uh, my ethos has always been with musical improv is that, number one, the music has to be really good. You should be able to take all the funny out of it and it's still a good song. Mm. Uh, so that's what we do. You know, we try to... Uh, we 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 get something from the audience and we do the best song we can based on that and it comes out funny just because of the dynamic of what's happening but we're not we don't parody musical styles we don't do anything over the top you know if we do a hip-hop song it's a real hip-hop song we do a country song it's a legit country song and it's good you know <laughs> So I am very excited if we can do that. I don't know. It's getting kind of late in the year to do that. We got to we gotta shit or get off the pot with this real soon. Um, but I, I'm very excited about that if that happens. Um, other than that, you know, I am really into uh, stand-up comedy and music is my focus now, you know, more so than voiceover and acting. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we spoke about this before. I I... I... I'm absolutely convinced that there's a market for quality and there's a, there's, there is a market out there for musicianship mm -hmm. and people who are putting in the grind and creating exquisite music that comes from training from, from a classical training yeah. 
like it is there and, and, it, and it is evidenced by by the data the data indicates that classical music is exploding all over the world yeah but, yeah you told me about that that's interesting yeah. i'm a huge classical music fan uh huge i was very influenced and i've studied it and everything um that that's that's inspiring mm. yeah you know i i I th when we talked before, you, th you thought maybe this is a trend or a fashion, all this instant stuff on social media. And I hope it is. I was watching uh, uh, Joe Rogan was talking with Louis C.K. And about the same. Oh, actually, was it Louis? No, it was not Joe Rogan. It was on another interview. And it was with a young guy. And, again, and the young guy said, well, so how do you relate to all this, uh, you know, the need to put stuff on TikTok and this and that and put out stuff on social media every day? He said, well, I don't have that need. I don't do it. I think it's bullshit. And he talked a lot about the algorithm. Uh, you're performing for an algorithm. Mm. And it's funny because I had just written the long screed a few days before I saw this. Uh, I'm definitely on the same page with him. To me, yeah, like he was saying that you're tailoring what you're doing, not to people, not to your fans or people who you think might be interested in what you've got to say, but in order to get the algorithm to allow you to be seen mm. and uh, so you're performing for a bunch of ones and zeros basically mm. uh, that are there to make money and no other reason they don't give a fuck about you um and my thought that i'd had was that um you know in life when people notice us and pay attention to us that means something when people like us that means something when people like something we've done that means something when people love something we've done, that means something. Uh, when people criticize something, I mean, it all means something in real time, in real life. Uh, we're wired that way to be emotionally affected by that. And in this artificial world of social media, you know, you have you're you're at the mercy of the algorithm as far as who pays attention to you, who acknowledges you. If the algorithm wants people to see you, you might get some acknowledgement from people. Mm -hmm. uh, how many likes you get is determined by the algorithm how many loves you get you know and people now are trying to manipulate the algorithm it's all about surf that algorithm make the algorithm work for you and louis ck felt and i agreed that it's it's very demeaning it's very destructive he was talking in terms of comedy it's just the death of comedy it's destroying comedy that you, you do that. You're, he says he sees, he's a big comedy fan and he watches young people coming up and ah, oh, they got some potential there. And then they get into this whole cycle of trying to please the algorithm and they just, he says, they just get worse to get unfunny. All the, the real stuff goes out. And his answer, and he's in a whole different position, of course. I mean, despite him having been, you know, canceled for quite some time and come back uh, after a lot of struggle, he's still in a position where, you know, he can play Madison Square Garden. You know, <laughs> well, he, he has an audience, and the audience has not necessarily gone away. Yeah, uh, he's yeah, he's in a situation where he can say what he said, which is that. Just do what you do, you know. Just get good. Go out and do your sets, do your shows get good, be good, be true to who you are, you know? And again, it's easier for him to say because he has an audience and people who are trying to get audience, they say, well, that's great. I've been working at clubs for 10 years. I'm not getting anywhere, man. I gotta, I gotta get on TikTok. You know, I call these clubs, you know, try to get booked and they say, how many Instagram followers do you have? <laughs> and Lucy K was saying, they're just telling me you don't have Instagram. No, I don't have Instagram. I don't have Facebook. I'll send you a take. <laughs> 
if that's the case, if, if, if they are, if they, if clubs, the club comedy circuit is asking how many Instagram followers you have, are looking for your social media numbers before they book you. Yeah. Um, that forces the artist and the comedian to build up the social media piece. Right. Right. Which yeah, is sure. not yeah. what they need to be doing. Right. And it's the same with music, you know. Mm. Apparently, there are such things as record companies these days, but in order to get them or a manager or anybody else to pay attention to you, you have to have, you know, hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers. Uh, it just seems to be a requirement nowadays that, you know, I have a friend here in Iceland who's kind of, I guess you would say, a one liner comic. And um, he's be, he's blown up on TikTok. He's he's become, you know, a star on TikTok. Uh, he just puts out these little 15 second things of him doing his thing and he does it like every day and it works for him. I'm not a one-liner comic, you know, I take on themes and stuff, you know, I do every set I do is about something. So it's harder for me to fit into that format and a and B I don't want to, you know, I, I just, uh... so I have, Louis C.K.'s attitude without his fame. So we'll see how that works out. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I do think there is a, like I said, I think there's a huge market for it, um, for quality mm -hmm. and not a, a, an instant thing. So, and I, I, I'll be one of the first in the queue buying a ticket for the, uh, the improvised, uh, the comedy show at Edinburgh Fringe, if it, if it, if it materializes. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, Nick. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you, Connor. Um, to you, fascinating story, as I suspected it would be, and um, yeah, let's do it again soon. Absolutely, pleasure. All right, take care, lad. <laughs> bye, bye. Guys, I have been living in Iceland for four years, Reykjavik. Now, some of you may have heard tales of the notorious downtown Reykjavik nightlife and hookup scene. Uh, we got a witness over here. <laughs> For those of you who have, you need to forget that shit right now. You got the PG Disney version. For those of you who have not, I'm going to sum it up for you in one phrase. I'm drunk, I'm horny, you'll do. Or to put it in another way, the volume of alcohol consumed multiplied by the degree of hormonal activity in the lower body is inversely proportional to the number of fucks given about quality control. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you may well begin your Reykjavik evening with normal healthy blood levels of discretion, due diligence, common sense, and good taste. But by bucket o'clock a.m., chances are real good that you and or the pitiful excuse for a human being standing in front of you will be thinking, I'm drunk. I'm drunker than Darcy. I'm horny. Ooh, a pulse. You'll do. <laughs> now, the song I want to sing for you about this is written from the female point of view. Because Lord knows I've seen far too many of my dear sisters from another mister in that town suffer the most ridiculous indignities at the hands of the absolute dregs of my gender when their only crime was drinking enough Brennan shots to kill everybody in here three times over. <laughs> so I got to represent. Let me get this going. Oh, one more thing. I have never, ever, ever heard country music in Iceland. I think it's been banned. <laughs> along with fresh vegetables, lambskin, condoms, and the word please. <laughs> but 
we ain't in Iceland. We in Burbank. They don't talk like this in Burbank either. So we gonna go on Nashville on this song, bitch. That all right with y'all? Okay. I took the bus in from Hopnerfield Looking for some fun Hope to find my Prince Charming Well, son, you ain't the one But there's no one here any better And it's almost half past two And I'm drunk, I'm horny, you'll do I broke up with my boyfriend Not all that long ago It was 8 o'clock this evening Yeah, crazy, right? I know! He was a dickhead and a douchebag And so are you But I'm drunk, I'm horny, you'll do I'm horny and drunk My standards have sunk That's why I keep on grabbing your junk you last all of three minutes And then you'll be on your way Oh, men are so useless I wish I was gay when I was a young girl All the cool boys loved me But now I'm so old I'm almost 23 You're the worst guy they ever met Oh, and I've met me quite a few But I'm drunk, I'm horny Come here, you'll do Morning will come And you'll still be napping I'll look at you snoring and think How the fuck did that happen? <laughs> oh, they say love is blind How I wish that were true Cause I'm getting a headache Just looking at you We'll avoid each other in a supermarket Like folks around these parts tend to do Soon you'll forget me And I'll forget you But then we'll meet right back here At Sniper's Yogurt Replace in a month or two Saying I'm drunk, I'm horny You'll do Sing it with me one last time, folks Said I'm drunk You'll do, you pathetic, clueless, broke-ass, slob-ass, vomit all over your shirt, cocaine dripping out your nose, you loser. I'm so drunk, so damn horny. Oh, fuck it, give me another shot. You'll do. You guys have been fantastic. Thank you so much.